difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, welcome to Night TV Radio. Today is Wednesday, the 3rd of May, 2023. Coming up in your program today, we have a conversation with a cyber elder, Auntie Macros Elu, talking about a move by Torres Strait Islander elders to take the government to court for lack of action to mitigate the effects of climate change on their country. As you hear, if you think people becoming environmental refugees is something that will happen sometime in the future, well, think again. Some Torres Strait Islanders have been exiled from their land since the 1940s due to climate change. Also on NITV Radio, we have a selection of stories that aired on NITV, including the clash yesterday between the police and First Nations protesters as they were being evicted from a historic site near Brisbane. In the program today, we also look at the latest interest rate hike, by the Reserve Bank of Australia, exploring what it means for the country. These stories and more coming to you on ITV Radio after the latest news. And this afternoon, we are broadcasting from Nam on the Cooling Nation. Bertrand Tungandami Ngaya, I'm Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, outcry as First Nations people evicted from a historic site near Brisbane. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese claims he's prepared to swear allegiance to King Charles III. And in sport, Indigenous Australian cricket squad to begin a five-game Pacific series. Police have evicted First Nations protesters occupying land designated for development at a former Aboriginal reserve near Brisbane. Temporary homes were bulldozed at the Dibbing Creek site in an, in an early morning raid yesterday, sparking scuffles between protesters and security guards. Developer Evie Jennings bought the land seven years ago with plans to build a multi-million dollar housing development and ordered the operation to remove protesters. The developer says it has all the necessary approvals to do so, including the support of some traditional owners. But protesters claim the land is a massacre site and should be preserved. One of the protesters, Jody Williams, says they were not shown any documents to prove the legality of the eviction when police moved into the area. We were given no legal documents and we were told that they were here on behalf of A.V. Jennings. So I, till this, I still haven't seen any form of legal document to have us removed. 
Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says he will swear allegiance to King Charles despite being a lifelong Republican. While in London for the coronation, Mr Albanese told Sky News presenter Piers Morgan there was no contradiction in being a Republican and still respecting the monarchy. I think you can be a lifelong Republican, which I am, and still respect our institutions. And certainly I have a great deal of respect for King Charles. And it's a great honour to be here representing Australia, all Australians. Mr Albanese met with the King earlier in the day. Meanwhile, a controlled explosion has been carried out and Metropolitan Police have arrested a man outside Buckingham Palace after suspected shotgun cartridges were thrown into palace grounds. The palace was cordoned off, but police say the incident is considered is not considered to be terrorism-related, but is a mental health-related. More than 190 Australians and their families have fled Sudan after an Australian Air Force plane helped evacuate citizens. The Royal Australian Air Force joined the international evacuation effort overnight with a flight carrying 36 Australians and their family, as well as citizens from six other nations safely to Cyprus. Foreign Minister Penny Wong told ABC Radio the authorities were in contact with registered Australians about further departures. The Greens are strongly criticising the Reserve Bank of Australia's latest cash rate hike, calling for the Treasurer to reverse the decision. The RBA's board decided to increase interest rates by a further 0.25% on Tuesday, reaching 3.85% overall and putting even more pressures on Australian households. Greens leader Adam Bant told ABC this was not the right decision. It's time for the government to step in, um, freeze the mortgage rates, freeze uh, rents, freeze power bills and pay for it by making these big corporations pay their fair share of tax. That is how you tackle inflation, uh, get it under control without hurting everyday people. But at the moment, it's everyday people who are bearing the brunt um, of not only the inflation crisis, but are now being asked to do their heavy lifting to tackle it as well. It's not right and the government needs to act. The Greens are calling for a two-year freeze following by 2% caps on rent increases and an end to no grounds evictions. Treasurer Jim Chalmers says the government is serious about spending restraint following the Reserve Bank's decision yesterday to continue increasing interest rates. The RBA board raised the rates once again for the 11th time in 12 months to 3.85% yesterday as it tries to bring down inflation rate. Dr. Chalmers is set to deliver the budget next Tuesday, which he says will target cost of living pressures for the most vulnerable without fueling inflation. Obviously, uh, one of the important tasks of the budget is to make sure that we can provide cost of living relief without adding substantially to the inflationary pressures in our economy. And one of the difficult uh, judgments that we have to make as we put the finishing touches on this budget is how to provide that cost of living relief that people need. How do we target it at the most vulnerable Australians uh, at the same time as we show restraint elsewhere in the budget? Unions are cautiously optimistic Qantas can reset its relationship with workers as long-standing boss Alan Joyce prepares to step down after a turbulent time on the industrial relations front. 
Qantas Chief Financial Officer Vanessa Hudson was unveiled as Mr. Joyce's successor. She'll be the first woman to take the top job in the, in the airline's century-long history when she replaces Mr. Joyce in November after his 15 years at the helm. Under Mr. Joyce's leadership, the flag carrier encountered multiple legal challenges, including a high-profile fight in the High Court against 1,700 sacked Qantas ground workers. In her first remarks, Ms. Hudson outlines her desire for a transparent relationship with union leaders. I'm also looking forward to to meeting uh, unions and and our union leaders, and, and I look forward to developing a constructive uh, relationship with them for the benefit of our people but also for the benefit of our organisation and I think that relationships are based on being transparent. French trade unions are calling for another round of national protests to be held on Saturday May 6. It comes after more than 100, pol- 100 police officers were wounded and 291 people detained in clashes across France. Hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets on May Day to protest against the French president's unpopular pension reforms, which will see the retirement age lifted by two years to 64. Neonatal nurse Sandrine Guillaume, who has been participating in protests, says they do not plan to stop until Macron's reforms are revoked. What's next? As long as the pension reforms are not withdrawn, we will continue to protest. All that we want is for Emmanuel Macron to give up and withdraw his reforms. Today, April 3rd, 2023, May 3rd, 2023, marks the 30th anniversary of the United Nations World Press Freedom Day. This year's theme will be shaping a future of rights, freedom of expression as a driver for all other human rights. Celebrated every year on May the 3rd, it marks 30 years since the United Nations General Assembly's decision in proclaiming an international day for press freedom. UNESCO's Chief of the Freedom of Expression and Safety of Journalists section, Guilherme Canela de Souza Godoy, says there's still much work to be done. There are particular problems, for instance, regarding the online harassment against women journalists. Uh, Our data shows that 73% of the women journalists we have interviewed for this particular research communicated they suffered online harassment in a way or another. According to the UN, at least 67 media workers were killed in 2022, a 50% increase from the previous year. Nearly three-quarters of women journalists have experienced violence online and one in four have been threatened physically. Back home, an experienced firefighter who died after she was injured responding to a large factory fire is being remembered for her courage and devotion to the job. Queensland Fire and Emergency Services, QFES, have stated Isabella Nash died in hospital overnight after suffering critical injuries in the Slacks Creek Fire south of Brisbane. A second firefighter, Leah Drew, also rescued in the blaze early on Tuesday morning, remains in hospital in a serious but stable condition. The QFES have expressed their condolences towards the two firefighters' families, friends and fellow crew members. United Firefighters Union Queensland Secretary John Oliver added Ms. Nash was an experienced firefighter with about a decade in the service. And to sport, Australia's men's and uh, women's indigenous cricket teams have travelled to the Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu where they'll play for a four-game tour. 
the matches will mark the first time the sides have toured internationally since the 2018 commemorative tour. The first of the four matches in the inaugural tour begins this Wednesday, the 3rd of May, and the tour will end on the 19th of May. Australian men's indigenous cricket team captain Damon Egan says he's, in, he's anticipating an exciting competition. All things like conditions and a little bit of unknown in terms of, I guess, you know, what they're like as a playing nation. I think we'll just be a bit of a wait and see, but um, you know, I'm expecting you know, to play against a team who love their cricket and are as competitive as anyone you'd play against around the world. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Brome sunny 26, Perth sunny 27, Adelaide showers easing 18 degrees, Melbourne showers easing as well at the top of 16, Hobart showers 14, Albury Wodonga cloudy day 14, Canberra possible shower 15 degrees, Wollongong mostly sunny 23, Sydney mostly sunny as well at the top of 25, Newcastle sunny 26, Brisbane sunny 26 as well, Townsville partly cloudy 28, Cairns, much the same, 30 degrees. Alice Springs, mostly sunny, 23. Darwin, mostly sunny, 34 degrees. And the Torres Strait Islands are mostly cloudy there ahead and the top of 29 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. I am Bertrand Tungandame and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from NAM on the Cooling Nation this Wednesday afternoon. Now coming up next, well, Saibai Island elder Auntie Macros Elu will join us to explore recent action by Torres Strait Islander elders who are taking the government to court for lack of action to mitigate the effects of climate change on their country. We also have a selection of stories that aired on NITV, including the clash yesterday between the police and First Nations protesters as they were being evicted from a historic site near Brisbane. We also explore the latest interest rate hike by the Reserve Bank of Australia and what it means for us. First, why the government needs to act yesterday to mitigate the effects of climate change in low-lying islands of the Torres Straits of art, environmental and humanitarian catastrophe. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. I'm joined by Auntie Macrozelu, an elder from Saibai Island, in the sidelines of a recent visit by the former Kiribati president and chairman of the Pacific Voice to Saibai and Buigu Islands in support for a move by elders of these islands to take the Australian government to court for lack of action to mitigate the effects of climate change. Auntie Macros, thanks for joining us on NITV Radio and uh, what's your reflection on this development? Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. First and foremost, I would just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the area uh, where we are at this morning and where I am here in Brisbane and calling on ancestors in this process um, of this particular issue, um, climate change. Yes, it was a great pleasure to have a the former leader of the Kiribati on the islands um, about a week ago. I think first time ever that um, one of the um, leaders from the Pacific came across to to uh, offer uh, and contribute and support this process for our low-lying islands, Saibai and Baigu. Um, 
I was there, of course, at that time and uh, with all the deliberations and discussions in our communities um, about what, how we can negotiate with the government um, along with the, the, the former leader, Anache um, Tong, uh, from Kiribati with his uh, uh, support of negotiation with the Australian government in regards to the um, fossil and, and coal and um, everything else that's happening in the country. And it was strongly, it was strongly urged uh, in a way that elders uh, uh, signed a statement to the government to demand immediate action or even an invite to the Prime Minister of Australia and environmental ministers and and the others, um, other ministers that are of um, interest to this issue, to the Torres Strait, to be able to see it for themselves on these low-lying islands of Saibai and Baigu. Anate Chong strongly uh, expressed how the contribution can be made from the Pacific, along with us in the Torres Strait, um, to support the movement uh, for this global warming um, issue on our islands. Yourself, you've been a long-time campaigner for action against climate change. You've uh, spoken at the UN, uh, in Paris, in New York, and many other forums, really talking to the global audience about uh, climate change, uh, especially how it affects your country. Can you tell us about the situation uh, nowadays uh, on country? I actually put uh, Torres Strait in a global picture in 2015 in Paris. Nobody knew about the Torres Strait Islands. Um, so that was very good in a way. There were a lot of questions asked for from the forum just about the locations and where they are and where they belong to. In, in my uh, journey on this issue along with, uh, with, uh, with others, I, I strongly express um, you know, the needs and that of our people in the Torres Strait and, and um, especially on these low-lying islands, um, how it has been affected by the, from the time, every time when I visited the islands. And of course, at this recent visit to the Torres Strait, I found it was, it's, 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 getting, it's not getting any better at all, if I can say that frankly. Um, government had spent so much money on building up the seawalls, but I would say very sincerely that those seawalls are not very effective at all because the winds in the Torres Strait are very, very treacherous as out of the weather patterns. It can change in a minute uh, when the sea rises and, and, and the storm come and, and, and everything else, the waves toss on the, on the shores of the islands. They go over these uh, seawalls, so they're not very effective. I, I have experienced Recently, when I was up there last week, there was a big storm on Saibai Island. And I could see from the veranda where I was staying that um, the water was just over over the, over the walls. And it was actually very, very frightening. Uh, it was, it was um, water was actually on the road up to the knee. You know, when you go out, out to the road, you can't even get in the car because the, the water was so high. So I would think that, you know, this, this time, it, it is a very serious, um, serious outcome from daily, every day, and talking to the people on the islands, they have seen the changes on the high tides, the winds, the pattern of the tides and the, and the, um, and the currents. 
it had affected, um, of course, the garden parts. They're severely damaged. We no longer plant anything in the garden. Have to remind our listeners that the Torres Strait Islands are located between Australia and Papua New Guinea. From the dozens of islands in the area, only 17 are inhabited. And out of those 17, half of them are already inundated. Yes. Now, these are only the top western islands of the Torres Strait, those low, two low-lying islands, Saibai and Boigu. And of course, you know, there is one island on the top, it's called Duan. And Duan has also had the erosions on the shores, and it's a hilly, hilly island. But there's also damage there. And then, of course, we got central islands in the Torres Strait, which are the Atoll Islands. Now, that would be, they would be in the very severe kind of situation in this monsoonal season, because they're right in the middle and, you know, they're so far away from the mainland, like, like all of us. We have, for us, Boigu and Saibai, we have got the Papua New Guinea, which is not that far. If there was something that happens and uh, the people that would come to our rescue would be the would be from Papua New Guinea, not Australia, because we are 45 minutes on the air and there's no boats in the Torres Strait or Passions of Liner. Uh, they're all just, just a, a small aircraft that service the islands. So I would say if there was any, any, um, any um, urgent, um, you know, say the water go high tide come up over the, over the, over our islands, Papua New Guinea would be the closest for us. And this is central to the two elders' concerns, I mean the two uh, elders who are taking the government to court because uh, the situation is so dire that the population are facing the possibility of becoming climate refugees. Of course, of course, that is very, very true. Now, these two these two uncles, um, they are brothers, they are very, very... <clears throat> I must say that I was honoured that they have taken this challenge it's a big challenge ahead, you know, as you and I know and the others, that it's not just a short-term decision or anything else. It's a, it's a long process of that, but they've taken that on board, of course, with the support from the, from the communities on those islands to support them strongly in their movement and, and the people that are involved, you know, the legal people from the um, legal agencies that are involved in this issue. I, for one, as an elder, as a Territorial Islander, I'm very supportive of that. And I'm also, along with the others, determined to challenge or even to negotiate strongly with the government in a way how best that we can accommodate this. This is an urgent matter. It's not a matter that it can be resolved, that, uh, you know, in a way that uh, how the, uh, you know, the situation is currently. I think the government, the government of Australia should take a really strong action in a way of uh, looking at those islands and visit those islands and sit with the people and the elders and see it for themselves, how it affects those islands. And if I can also add in a way that this monsoonal season is almost overdue. Normally our monsoonal season will be over by now. But when I was up there recently, the pattern of it is just so different. It's it's storm and lightning and and, and, and real uh, torrential rain. And, and, and the old land and the earth was all soaked up. And as we were walking through that, it, it, bad enough, you look from the air, there's more water than land on these islands. But then, of course, landing and walking along, it's, it's absolutely drenched. It is a very severe uh, situation out there. 
And do you think the government is working hard enough with traditional owners who are the people most impacted by this situation and uh, the most at risk? Well, um, I think they're doing all their best they can, but they're not doing enough, if I can say. My main um, concern is like, you know, of course, government in, in its in its own um, policies and decision-making and everything else that they would look into, well, I hope that they are um, seriously looking into this, these um, issues on the islands. However, that, you know, my main, um, main request would be to the government is, or, is to go up there uh, and see it for themselves. Then they can see why is it so important for our people and they probably will feel it. This is how it is, you know, um, because making decisions from Canberra or anywhere else is not not um, not good because you need to get up there and see it for yourselves. I mean, you know, Torres Islanders are uh, uh, Labour voters, most of them, and we have a great courage with with the Labour government. And I, w- I would uh, I would really seriously hope and and, and that the, uh, the the heads of this government, you know, be able to to seriously consider the action as quick as possible in a way our best, you know. But I I must say that and reiterate it very strongly, those sea walls are not effective. We need to do more to to, to um, uh, survive those people on those islands. I think the government should really take action on it uh, seriously. Yeah. Now, I was looking at your biography and uh, notes, uh, especially when you received a prestigious accolade in uh, Queensland. Uh, it is said that your own family left Saibai Island in the 1940s because of uh, king tides that were causing uh, tremendous damage to the properties. Uh, that's several decades already. That is very correct. And I'm a recipient of that, like the others are now settled up on the tip of Australia, Bamaga and Saisia. Now, my father was very instrumental in this in this movement, along with the other elders and clan groups of, of Saibai Island, because they can see it in 1940s, the, you know, the, the impact on those islands and, and how it's going to be in, in, in years to come. So that decision was, was made there then to be able to negotiate with the government to see where we can, we can uh, leave, our, leave our homelands and, and, and try and go and seek a better life somewhere else and to be supportive in the years to come when looking back to Saibai. And I think that's why I was so instrumental in this movement was because of my father's influence on all of us to say that as we were growing up on the Cape and going through the education and, and, and going away from, the, from, the, uh, from, from Saisia to um, Melbourne to our further education, and he always say say that one day when you are able to, when you get in the position what you want to do in your life, you must not forget Saibai uh, in your in your capacity. But I, I, that kind of thing really instilled in my in my in my head through my career path. I think that's why I was so strong. I pick up this at the earliest stage in 1980s, and. Um, to be able to what I can do to support the leaders of the Torres Strait in my own independent way. Yes, that migration was made because they knew that there will be a severe impact in years to come. And the results of that is today, as you can see, plainly, it's there. Uh, 
you can't really overlook overlook that situation because it is really happening, yes. So I can deduct that you became climate refugees already in the 1940s, so many years ago. So the phenomenon of climate refugees was happening already before we started talking about it in the media. Yes, it's really happening. And I've seen it through my time when I joined the public service. That was back in, back in 1980s. And um, even there then, I was traveling up to the islands um, from time to time. And, and I could see that it was changing all the time. The pattern of the wind and the weather, everything else was changed. And the lifestyle also was changed. Now, if I can also say today, it was really sad in a way that our people on the islands are now dependent with the, with the, with the uh, supermarkets to buy their food. Whereas before, it was a garden, all fresh veggies and food and seafood and everything else. You know, people are, are people, the life uh, sustainability uh, from the land and the sea was, was, was fruitful. Everything was really good. And nobody got sicker anyway, you know, in those times. But now today, we have the highest number of health conditions of hypertension, diabetes, kidney diseases, everything else on the islands. And like I said, no more gardening. So they had to go to the supermarket to buy all needs that comes in every every week to the islands uh, uh, to um, uh, to the shops. So they're not depending on the land anymore. They can't plant because there's more salt, more salt than it is. You can't really grow many crops or even use the land productively when it's covered by seawater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Auntie Macros, any parting thoughts before I let you go? Yes, there is a closing thought, my dear. I would, I would really uh, ask the government to really consider, you know, the, um, you know, the fuel fossils emissions and coals and everything else that's affecting this climate change and we want to uh, stay below this um, uh, 1.5 degrees celsius or 2 point whatever it is you know below this because the world is heating up and i could feel it the weather is thing i would urge the government to take a immediate action if they can and um and very very um strongly i would i would ask them to visit the islands, visit the islands and sit for themselves. And also um, encouraging our communities back on Saiba and Boigu to support brothers uh, Paul and Pabai in their movement on this uh, particular issue. And for the, um, the legal, legal team that is supporting, supporting them at uh, this uh, time that we are really privileged and honored that we know that they're doing everything possible in their ability to see what action can be taken. Auntie Macros, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today. Thank you very much. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV Radio. And that was uh, Sunshine on a Rainy Day by uh, Christina Noom. Coming up next, our selection of stories from uh, NITV. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. There were dramatic scenes near Brisbane yesterday as police moved in to evict First Nations protesters occupying land earmarked for development. 
temporary structures were bulldozed in the early morning raid, sparking scuffles between protesters and security guards. It's a major turning point in a bitter dispute that has been raging for years. Tanisha Williams reports. A rude awakening. Aboriginal protesters at Deeming Creek, west of Brisbane, shaken from their beds by the sound of vehicles and flashing lights. Yola, what is your purpose? I have a 10-year-old child here and this is terrifying her. Moments later, dozens of police, security guards and construction workers arrived along with heavy machinery. By daybreak, bulldozers had moved in, demolishing the makeshift homes of protesters who had occupied the site for three years. I still haven't seen any form of legal document to have us removed. Tempers flared as a growing number of protesters converged on the site, facing off with security guards. I think it's a damn shame. I think the state needs the answer for this. You know, best thing we can do now is just report it and keep getting these interviews and these videos out here and, and let the world know what's going on in this site before everything gets destroyed. Developers A.V. Jennings bought the land seven years ago and ordered the operation to remove protesters. Today we moved on to the site to have those people removed and, and the illegal trespassers removed. A.V. Jennings wants to build a multi-million dollar housing development and says it has all the approvals to do so, including the support of some traditional owners. The bitter dispute has divided families, with protesters claiming the land is a massacre site and should be preserved, a claim refuted by studies and the traditional owners backing the project. Many times we left in tears thinking, will we do the, are we doing the right thing for our community, you know? Um, and I think we are, and I have the blessing of my elders, so I'll be doing it. As work starts, the protests remain, and this protracted battle over land and development continues. Tanisha Williams, NITV News. And a new dance theatre piece exploring the theme of identity has brought two of Australia's artistic powerhouses together for the first time. The Australian Ballet and Australian Dance Theatre have teamed up to produce The Hum. At the helm is Wiradjuri man Daniel Riley, who is ensuring First Nations collaboration is a key part of the production. Ricky Kirby has more. This is a site that's not been seen before on any Australian stage. Dancers from the Australian Ballet joining their colleagues from the Australian Dance Theatre to produce The Hum. It's a collaborative work that's exploring a, a shared place, a, a silent resonance, you know, a hum, the hum of our land, the hum that we share as humans, um, the hum of conversation, the hum of artistry as well, and, and, and that relationship between musicians and performers. The collaboration extends beyond the dance troops, with creator Daniel Riley drawing on First Nations creatives for the music and costume designs. Everyone has, I feel like, has been part of this process and it's not just um, them wearing a costume that they have no connection to and I feel like it, that they will have a sense of identity connecting with the costumes as well. For me it's been really exciting and actually really important that with all work that I make, that I'm working with mob. You know, for me, being able to work in our practices and our ideas and ideologies is really important. 
with renowned Yorta Yorta composer and soprano Deborah Cheatham creating a brand new music score for the show. This First Nations lens brought to a notion that is universal, really, this idea of identity, who we are and how we are in the world and how we connect. That's what audiences will see and hear and experience. Daniel Riley says the new work is a contemporary fusion of Indigenous viewpoints. That's the beauty of our ongoing uh, cultural resilience, is that we are forever reforming and reshaping and making something that speaks to the now. We're already displaying on stage what an Australia can look like when First Nations people are right there in the mix, in the decision-making process, in the story-making process. The Hum opens in Sydney tonight before heading to Melbourne in June. Ricky Kirby, NITV News. And uh, that's all for a selection of stories uh, shared from NITV. We must now go to a break, but when we come back, we'll look at the latest interest rate rise and what it means for us. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. Now, in a move that has taken markets by surprise, the Reserve Bank of Australia has lifted interest rates again after a month-long pause. The bank has lifted rates by 25 basis points to 3.85%, making Australia's interest rates the highest they have been for 11 years, while still at a relatively low level. The decision comes ahead of next week's federal budget and RBA Governor Philip Lowe says inflation is still too high at 7% and further rises have not been ruled out. Angelica Waite reports. After a pause last month following 10 straight interest rate hikes since May last year, the Reserve Bank has again lifted the cash rate. It now sits at 3.85%, making it the highest it has been since April 2012. Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers says while this will undoubtedly cause difficulties for Australian homeowners struggling with mortgage repayments, rate hikes are necessary to combat inflation. Today the Reserve Bank has lifted interest rates uh, by a quarter of a percent. Uh, This is a really difficult decision for a lot of Australians who are already under the pump. Uh, This is a reminder that inflation remains the primary challenge in our economy. Uh, This is a reminder of the difficult economic conditions in which we frame this second budget. The opposition's Treasury spokesman Angus Taylor says the decision will put substantial pressure on Australian homeowners. We've just seen the 10th increase in interest rates since the election and for an Australian household with a mortgage of $750,000 that means they are paying an additional more than $1,700 a month over and above what they were paying back in May last year. The economic pain is set to be felt by many more borrowers whose fixed interest rate loans are due to end in the coming months. Senior economist and investment professional Eleanor Cray says the hardship caused by the rate rises will have wide-reaching impacts on economic activity in Australia. We're expecting that, you know, household spending will continue to slow as the full impact of rate rises really catches up um, to those borrowers and, and, and we're likely to continue to see um, 
economic activity subsiding as well as as uh, the full impact of those rate rises that have already been delivered uh, really catches up. In a statement, the Reserve Bank Board says the increase in interest rates was warranted by the need to bring Australia's inflation back in line with targets. With inflation sitting at 7%, after dropping slightly from a high of 7.8%, the Reserve Bank has warned it could lift rates further unless inflation comes down to acceptable levels. Economic expert Alan Duivo Evans says the decision comes as a shock to many market experts. We can't really say that that is the end of the hiking cycle. They've um, they've stirred the pot here a little bit actually, and uh, they've certainly gone against market consensus and opened up the possibility that there may well be further hikes down the road. While mortgage holders are hit hard by the rate hikes, it's not just homeowners that are struggling. Australian charities like the Smith family have found 1.2 million Australians and their children are also finding it hard to deal with the current cost of living pressures. Many claim the situation is worse than during the COVID pandemic. CEO of the Smith family, Doug Taylor, describes the upheaval Australian families are experiencing as a result of the current cost of living crisis. With increasing costs, that can obviously lead to increase in rent, Uh, rental costs for families and can mean that lower-income families need to move around to find um, accommodation that they can afford. And, of course, that's hugely disruptive for the family, but particularly disruptive for a child um, and their education. The Reserve Bank's actions are likely to cause further pain to Australian families as the government faces increasing calls to alleviate cost-of-living pressures in next week's budget. Angelica Waite, SBS News. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. And uh, this uh, brings us to the end of uh, today's program.